Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windisch, your host, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Michelle Gelfan about her new book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, sure. I'm a professor of cross-cultural psychology at the University of Maryland in College Park and also an affiliate of the R.H. Smith School of Business. And I study culture and how it evolves and with what consequence for human groups around the world. Um, I run a very interdisciplinary lab, and so we try to bring in people from different disciplines to study culture, including psychology, computer science, economics, neuroscience, um, to study all things cultural. Great. I think that this will be a really interesting conversation today about the book on tight and loose cultures, especially in the national security context. Um, Could you tell us how you came to specialize in cultural norms and ultimately write on this topic? Sure. So often it's the case that um, the most powerful things around us are invisible and we don't really recognize them. They're omnipresent, but not something we really think about. And culture is one of those puzzling phenomena. It's affecting us from politics to parenting, from nations to neurons, um, but we need to know more about it. And so I wrote this book to give people from diplomats to CEOs, from parents to policymakers, and even curious people watchers, a new lens with which to see the world and to understand uh, even themselves. And so I'm excited to um, to bring the research that we've been doing for 20 years um, into um, a general audience um, to clarify uh, just how important culture is for our everyday lives. So to start off, I'm going to ask you to explain what you describe in the book as tight and loose cultures. And I was hoping I could also put you on the spot to answer the question you ask in chapter eight, are you a T or an L? (laughs) So, you know, I'll just back up and say often when we think about cultural differences or divides, we think about things like red versus blue or east versus west or clash of civilizations, rich and poor. And I was really interested in trying to understand, is there a deeper cultural code that drives our differences? And that's what I've been studying. For the last 20 years, I've studied cultures um, both in the modern era and also traditional societies. I've studied 50 states uh, and organizations. And what I found is that there's a really important distinction that is affecting uh, all these different contexts. And that is basically how strictly groups adhere to social norms. All groups have social norms or unwritten rules behavior. Uh, In fact, we follow norms constantly. Um, We're constantly abiding by rules that we don't even realize. For example, we wear clothes and we leave the house, most of us. We drive on the right or left side of the road, depending on where we live. Um, we don't shout loudly in libraries or steal food off of people's plates in restaurants. In fact, we need rules. We don't even recognize how important they are to coordinate and predict each other's behavior. But what I found is that some groups have many strong rules and punishments for deviance from rules. I call these tight groups. And other groups are much more lax and permissive. They're loose groups. 
And this distinction of tight and loose affects a lot of our everyday life. Uh, as I mentioned, from politics to parenting, from nations to neurons. Um, and it, what's fascinating is to understand why do these differences exist? What causes them to evolve? And also what are their consequences for human groups? I'll say in answer to your question about am I a tight or loose, you know, we can also study uh, individuals in terms of their tight or loose my, mindset, in terms of their tight or loose mindset. In fact, on my website, michellegelfand.com, you can see a tight, loose mindset quiz to figure out where you fall on this continuum. Uh, I tend to be uh, moderately loose in my mindset. <laughs> uh, and I think it's really interesting to figure out um, where one falls on a default because it affects our decision making, it affects our relationships, our work, uh, and so forth. So um, check out the website and uh, send me your tight, loose mindset stories. I also saw that you put the, you categorize some of our Muppet characters and like the chaos Muppets and the order Muppets. And between seeing who was the, the chaotic Muppets and the, the orderly Muppets. And I, I did, I did take the quiz. Um, it was, it was interesting to kind of, you do learn something about yourself when you, when you think about all those things. <laughs> so when we think about a tight culture, what might we think about in terms of nations that embody that spirit or particular styles an individual who is a, in a tight culture, that what they might exhibit? So um, in, when I first set out to look at tight loose, I was looking at the national level. Later on, I looked at tight loose at the, at the state level, at organizations and in social class and even in our households. It's, it's basically what I refer to as a fractal pattern, which is a physics term that refers to a repeated pattern across different scales. And in a paper we published in Science in 2011, we were able to provide a metric for how to assess tight loose at the national level. And just like we could classify individuals in terms of their personalities, we can in general classify nations in terms of how tight or loose they are. So for example, in our research, we found that places like Japan and Singapore and Austria and Germany tended to veer tight. And places like Brazil, New Zealand, um, the Netherlands, and to some extent the U.S. veered looser. And we found um, that in every country, of course, there are tight and loose domains. So it's important to recognize that it's not a dichotomy. But we found a really interesting signature across tight and loose cultures, which I'll just summarize in terms of order versus openness. So tight cultures have a lot of order that have less crime. They have more synchrony and uniformity, even in what people are wearing and what they're driving. Um, even we found that clocks on city streets um, in tight cultures tended to have times that were more similar to each other, more uniform than clocks in loose cultures, where you're not totally sure what time it says because they're saying a lot of different times. Uh, and, and tight cultures have more order in the sense that people are controlling their impulses more. They have more self-regulation to avoid punishment. So they have less debt and less obesity, and they have more self-control more generally. And on this sense, loose cultures tend to be more disorderly. They have less, they have less um, self-regulation, more crime, and less synchrony uniformity. But what we found was that loose cultures corner the market on openness. They tend to be more open to different types of people, whether they're immigrants or people with stigmas. They tend to be more open to ideas. Uh, they're more creative. And they also tend to be more open to change. Tight cultures tend to struggle with openness. So we could see a clear tight, loose trade-off is how I refer to it. And where would you say that the United States falls in the tight, loose continuum? So in our data, the U.S. was quite loose 
Um, but what, like I'll mention a little bit later, we can zoom into um, the 50 states because the United States is such a large country and we can actually move beyond red versus blue to differentiate and rank order like I have in the book, the 50 states in terms of how tight versus loose they are. And for example, um, the South and some parts of the Midwest tend to veer tight. The coasts tend to veer loose and they have a very similar signature in terms of order versus openness that we found at the national level. Um, so, for example, tight states tend to be more polite <laughs> and rude states tend to be more rude. Um, we also found tight states tend to have people who are more conscientious and where there's more social order in terms of law enforcement and less divorce, less mobility, more self-control. But the loose states, just like loose nations, tend to be more open to different people and they're more creative. So we could see that, again, with this fractal pattern, tight loose can be seen, can illuminate the states in much the same way as it can illuminate nations. In one of your chapters, you discuss the logic behind how a culture might develop to be this way. Um, can you talk about some of the factors that can impact how a culture veers either tight or loose, um, whether it's there's some that you mentioned, such as density and the threat environment, um, health issues, et cetera? Sure. You know, it's interesting because culture, you know, it really isn't random that one of the things we study as cross-cultural psychologists, so what are the reasons that cause cultural differences to evolve in the first place? What are the logic behind them? And in the science study, we didn't see any similarity of tight cultures and loose cultures in terms of geography or in terms of language or religion. Um, tight and loose cultures also exist in different time periods. Um, but one thing we did find that really differentiates tight and loose cultures, one major factor has to do with how much threat that groups face. Um, so for example, um, tight cultures tend to experience a lot more threat when it comes to mother nature, more natural disasters, famine, scarcity. Uh, they also tend to, in general, experience more conflict, invasions on their own soil, man-made types of threats. Um, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, that if you have a lot of threat as a group, you need rules to help organize action to survive. Those are the kinds of threats you can't survive on your own. You need other people to cooperate and to follow the rules and context where you have chronic disasters or chronic invasions. And so in general, where there's threat, there tends to be tightness. There's, of course, other factors, and it's not all, it's not a one-to-one -one, uh, ratio, but we also know, for example, that diversity promotes looseness um, because when you have a lot of different people, it's harder to agree on one standard. Uh, mobility also fosters looseness. When you have people coming and going, it's harder to agree on one standard. So it's fascinating to think about why these differences evolve so that we can have a little more empathy um, for each other's differences. Um, just by way of example, population density was one of the threats that we studied, um, and you think about somewhere like Singapore that has 20,000 people per square mile, that's a lot of people packed into one very small place compared to, let's say, New Zealand, where there's about 50 people per square mile, and there's more sheep per capita than people, I've been told. And, you know, it's interesting that in Singapore, that tight space really requires rules to avoid chaos. And it actually even helps to explain some puzzling differences that we see around the world. For example, in Singapore, large quantities of gum are banned from being brought into the country. And that might seem really strange from an American point of view. But actually, what happened in Singapore was that there's so many mouths per capita and people were chewing gum and throwing on the floor. And turns out it was causing trains to malfunction and elevators to malfunction because it was gum was all over the place. 
Lee Kuan Yew then said, look, guys, we're going to have to ban gum. You know, this is to get rid of the tasty treat because it's causing a lot of havoc in this context. Of course, not all differences um, have the, can be traced to this kind of logic, but it's important that once we understand why culture evolves the way it does, it can help us to be more empathic for those differences. And you mentioned the threat environment being a significant factor. And we know, especially in the national security um, realm, that the threat environment is not uh, static. It's always changing. Mm-hmm. Can a society's culture change and and be different over time with um, the threat environment changes or during um, times of war? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Actually, one thing that's really important is that this dimension of tight and loose, it, it changes over time, no question. And we can sort of predict when it might change. For example, after the Boston bombing, we went in and surveyed people in Boston And we could see that people who felt very affected by that event immediately started to tighten. They wanted stronger rules. They thought the U.S. was too loose and they wanted um, to start thinking about having stronger leaders. In the U.S. election, we found, for example, that people who felt threatened similarly felt that they needed stronger rules and autocratic leaders. It's not just here. The same pattern of the data that I report in the book, Rule Makers or Breakers, we found in France as well. And so it is the case that when we perceive threat, we tend to tighten. Um, I've seen this in my own lab studies. I can activate fake threats in the laboratory, whether whether it's about terrorism or natural disasters or disease, and I can see immediately people tightening up. The, the issue is that it might cause temporary tightening, but um, tightness over a long scale is actually um, reinforced by having continual threats. So when threat subsides, my research shows, then we we can loosen up a little bit. So it is important to think about, you know, the fact that threat, whether perceived or illusory, can actually cause tightening. And I mention this because it's important to differentiate real from fake threat, because when we tighten, we are again starting to trade off on, on openness and order. Tightness is really important when we have real threats, when we need order and coordination, but it's detrimental Um, to openness and to creativity and to adaptation. So when we unnecessarily tighten, that could be a real problem. You talked a little bit in your book about um, some of the changes that America has undergone during different threats. You mentioned the Boston bombing. Can you talk about some of the changes in American culture after 9-11? Sure. In fact, um, you know, this is a clear case of a case where we needed to tighten uh, and we did tighten. Now there's again, the kind of balance between security and freedom that we struggle with, because the United States has not been a context where we've had a lot of conflict. We haven't been facing conic invasions. And I think that after 9-11, we tried to strike a healthy balance um, in terms of the threat. Nowadays, I would say that um, compared to after 9-11, where we were united by real threats, now we're starting to get divided by arguably um, illusory threats. We need to be, of course, very aware of real threats. I'm not discounting that. Uh, but at the same time, we need to be more calibrated when it comes to threats related to things like, for example, immigration and so forth. Um, so I think it's important to have a real um, clear um, diagnosis of threats um, and try to negotiate the reality of real versus fake threat. That's an interesting statement, too, when you talk about um navigating what the what the threat environment really looks like and i know you're uh you're looking at the cultural differences but um do you think there's a role or a responsibility of policymakers to help 
the public navigate that given the impact that it has on culture? Yeah, there's no question about it. I think it's that's a really important um, part of policymaking is and, and, and communication is to be able to not sound the alarm bell when um, it's not something that requires great tightening. And if clearly in this uh, sort of divided age, we have issues with um, a lot of false threat, a lot of illusory threat, um, not just here in the U.S., but all around the world. And in fact, in history, we know that some leaders amplify threats and target groups that are already threatened in order to gain popularity. Um, in our case, I think it's really important to um, understand that there are groups that are feeling a lot of threat and disruption, the working class, for example. But that at the same time, we have to start really discussing and and and, and debating the amount of threat we really have. Um, Steven Pinker, uh, one of my colleagues, you know, in his book really details with a lot of data how, you know, we're far more safe than we used to be, uh, but we feel more threat. And a lot of that is multiply determined. It comes from the Internet. It comes from um, a lot of different sources where we're constantly trying to now negotiate and think about what's real, what's illusory. Policymakers should be helping us to really navigate that with data and, and with research so that we can be better calibrated. And just as a side note, there is a chapter in the book that talks about cultural differences by class. It's very interesting also. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on that because it's a little little different, but it's just really fascinating. Well, I think it's really important, again, even with policymaking, to understand the culture of class. It's not something that just uh, can be understood by differences in bank accounts. And in the book, I talk about the research that I did with Jesse Harrington, one of my students, where we can show that actually there's big differences in tight loose in the working and upper class with some really important consequences that policymakers need to be aware of. For example, the working class um, and the middle class, when we ask them to just tell us what do you think about when you hear the word rules or follow the rules, and we find really big differences. It's the working class that finds rules to be pretty positive. They like rules compared to the upper class. Um, and it makes a lot of sense when it comes to a tight loose theory because the working class is exposed to many different threats. The fear of falling into poverty or hard living that sociologists talk about, having to work in occupations where there's a lot of danger and rules really help, and even their own neighborhoods that are much more dangerous. Rules are critical for survival in these contexts. In upper class contexts, you have more safety nets, and so you can afford to break the rules. And what's fascinating is that we can see that these differences arise very early. Jesse and I brought in three-year-olds into our laboratory, and we couldn't exactly ask the working class and middle class kids what they thought of rules. But we had them interacting with a puppet um, that was named Max, and they were playing with the puppet. And then Max did something kind of unusual. He started breaking the rules of the game they were playing. And what we found when we videotaped the reactions of these kids was that it was the working class kids by age three that were much more upset when the puppet was breaking the rules as compared to the working class. We know that parents of the working class are trying to train their kids to follow rules in order to survive. And these are long lasting imprinting that we get. And it's important to recognize because when the working class starts to try to enter middle class loose types of institutions, it's a real culture shock, as I talk about in the book. And um, that's a good, I guess, uh, transition to talk about more institutions and organizations. Um, I wanted to go back just because we were talking about 9-11 before. And uh, as a result of of those attacks, we saw a lot of changes in organizations in the government, including the formation of the Department of Homeland Security. And um, 
that brought together a lot of different agencies with differing cultures. And the story of Homeland Security is not the only one. We also have different um, armed services with different cultures and histories that work together and collaborate. Um, How can organizations that are in the national security space cope with these kind of organizational changes and the diversity of culture they may experience within those different organizations in that mission set? Yeah, that's such a great question because the social norm strength differs by organizations with really important consequences. Um, And we, we know that, for example, that tight companies and tight occupations vary predictably from loose ones in terms of the people that they attract, the practices they have, and the leaders that are driving their ships. So in tight organizations, which tend to be found in airlines and construction and manufacturing, nuclear power plants, all that have a lot of need for coordination and safety, as long as government organizations, auditors and lawyers that have a lot of public accountability, they tend to have people who are very conscientious. Um, They tend to have practices that are very efficient and formalized strong socialization, and they have leaders that tend to be pretty independent that call the shots in general. But loose organizations that are found, for example, in tech and design and startups, they tend to attract people who are more risk-taking and open. They tend to have practices that are more flexible and afford a lot of discretion and very informal. And they tend to have leaders who are very visionary and collaborative. And so the people and the practices and leaders of tight and loose organizations are very different. And when they start to merge, as probably happened in the case you're describing, they have a lot of problems. Um, And they often are not anticipated. Culture is so invisible that we don't think about um, what is it, what's underneath this iceberg that we're about to collide in. And we've actually shown the price tag of these kinds of mergers. Um, in a recent study that we reported in Harvard Business Review, we studied over 4,000 mergers and acquisitions that differed on tightness and looseness. And we could see that you know the big differences in tight loose produced a huge deficit in uh, return on investment. It cost over $200 million, um, not to mention the human costs. So that's just to suggest that we need to start thinking about tight and loose and diagnose it before we start merging so that we can anticipate the kind of conflicts we might have across the cultural divides. I think the Chrysler merger was one you spoke about as an example. Is that right? That's right. So Daimler Chrysler was a perfect example of a match that seemed to be made in heaven between two companies that had a lot of strategic and technical advantages. But beneath the surface, they had major cultural incompatibilities that could be linked in part to tightness and looseness and differences in their perspectives on social norms that cost the company a lot of money. In the more modern age, in the HBR paper, we talk about Amazon and Whole Foods as another example of this. It's two companies that technically looked and strategically looked perfectly matched, but had a lot of differences in tight and loose, Amazon veering tighter and and, and Whole Foods uh, veering looser. And, and the trick we argue in, in, in this paper is that we have to think about how to negotiate these differences ahead of time, because they're not static. They're things that we can measure and we can diagnose and we can think about what can we trade off on. If you're a tight organization, where can you enter in a little more discretion into the system? We call this flexible tightness. Or if you're a loose organization, where can you introduce a little more structure, maybe more accountability into that context? We call that structured looseness. And whether it's organizations or nations or even our own households, as a parent, I can attest to the fact that I'm constantly negotiating tight and loose with my kids (laughs) and husband, for that matter, in terms of what domains do we need to have tight 
And what domains can we allow to be more loose with the recognition that some groups, some companies, some contexts need to have stronger rules to coordinate and others don't, we could still negotiate um, at, at the margins to kind of come together and have a healthier balance of tight and loose. And how do you think organizations can be more um, able to, to function in tight and loose? Um, I think you call it ambidextrous in, in, the, in the context of the book um, to achieve national security objectives, which these types of objectives, whether they're law enforcement or um, national security oriented, may tend themselves towards tight cultures because it is kind of a high stakes work. How do, how do um, these organizations incorporate some of this that you're talking about of, of taking the benefits of both? I mean, I think it really boils down to a lot to leadership in organizations to help to understand how to bring people together that have different mindsets tight and loose and have them work together jointly with joint goals while and having mutual respect for the ways that they do things differently. Um, for example, innovation, um, which is something that's important in a lot of organizations, requires both looseness to come up with ideas, but it requires tightness to implement them. And even in contexts like national security or in the military, where clearly um, we need more coordination and order, elements of tightness, there's, there's the case that we could get too tight, in which case it might be detrimental to creativity and flexibility and adaptability. So even in the tightest of organizations, we need to diagnose what domains can we think about that are not as tightly connected to security that we can loosen up with and give people more um, discretion. Uh, the example in the book also that I talk about is, is United Airlines, which obviously had a lot of PR fiascos recently. This is a place that uh, needs to have tightness. We don't want people making up rules all the time. This is an airline. It requires a tremendous amount of coordination and safety, but arguably um, United was getting too tight and it needed to introduce some discretion in non-safety context. And what this requires is to just diagnose what are those contexts in any particular organization and then start making those changes. The other trick, I think, is to recognize that change is hard for people for different reasons. Tight groups have a lot of trouble giving up control because those rules are really helpful to feel secure. Loose groups have much more difficulty giving up autonomy. I've seen companies that try to bring in loose groups into a tight organization um, without recognizing that there's going to be a lot of cultural clash and a lot of negotiation and and, um, and and intelligence to help people understand the benefits of both types of cultures for different tasks. So it's a process and it involves leadership and involves diagnosing these differences ahead of time so that we can best negotiate them as we merge. You talk about organizations that have a tight or loose culture and, and the military is a classic a classic example, excuse me, of a very regimented organization. Can you speak to the military's culture in the context of your findings? Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned that, um, you know, you've worked with various different um, DOD organizations, and I think there's also variance in the military in terms of tight and loose. But nevertheless, as, a, as an organization, clearly, with the threats that they face, with the co coordination that's required, the people, practices, and leaders are all veered towards tightness. 
Uh, with that said, I think the military um, clearly also struggles and is trying to be adaptive and be introduce elements of looseness into the structure. And and I think that it's interesting. I interviewed some people that I report in the book that talk about how in the military people kind of think, well, you have to train people to follow even the most minor rules um, in terms of, let's say, your haircut or what socks you wear, <laughs> things like that, because you want them to be prepared to follow the really important rules in the battlefield. And I think that's something that we have to think about. Maybe we can decide which rules are really totally critical to socialize strongly, people to abide by, but give people a little bit more slack. Um, and, you know, in other contexts that are less important. It's also really important because um, one project I'm just starting up is looking at how when you live in a very tight environment, such as in the military, let's say on Navy ships or elsewhere, that, you know, when you get out of that environment, it can cause actually the reverse kind of opposite pendulum shift to, you know, total looseness. And that's something that we want to avoid also in terms of losing control. So it's important to strike a healthy balance, even in the tightest of organizations, so that we give people discretion, some freedom when, when it's um, not dangerous, so that we not only have healthier work environments, but also avoid the kinds of self-control failures we might see when people leave bases. I mean, the same analogy is of, of kids, you know, kids who live in very tight environments and then are let loose, you know, have all sorts of self-regulation problems. So it's also something that it's found, you know, right at home when we're raising kids is to try to strike a healthy balance uh, with tight and loose. Um, because you know, as an example, as a mother of two teenagers, you know, it would seem that this environment is very threatening, too, you know, especially in the United States. You know, there's a lot of potential threats, what your kids can get involved in. So you're propensity is to try to tighten up in a lot of different domains. But I think what's fascinating to me is how these things are negotiable. And we can talk about it with our kids about what domains really important to be regulated in and what, what domains can we give you a little bit more slack. Even if we need to have in some households more rules, we can still negotiate them. I want to shift gears to the idea of normative radar and I'm realizing we kind of, for our listeners, we started with countries and went to organizations, and now we're kind of getting down to to people. And I, I, I like I'd like you to explain what normative radar is for everyone, but also um, just discuss that from a national security perspective, how it could be a key aspect to diplomacy. Yeah, so you know, I think that there's big differences as I mentioned in the tight and loose mindset in terms of how much people are attentive to rules. People with high normative radar are, are attentive to what rules are in the environment. They want to avoid mistakes. They're, they're controlling impulses and, and they like a lot of structure. And, and people who have less normative radar or looser mindsets are less attentive to no social norms. They're more likely to take risks. They're more impulsive and they're more tolerant of ambiguity. And this is a more general difference in cultural mindsets that I think is really important to bring to the national security table. And it's part of a broader question about cultural intelligence. Often it's the case in many contexts, whether they're organizations or national security, that we think about intelligence or emotional intelligence. We don't think about cultural intelligence at the table. In fact, we send people abroad to negotiate or to um, merge and, and do business based on their technical expertise, not based on their cultural intelligence. And in my work, I could see very clearly that it's the people that have high cultural intelligence who, who do better at the negotiation table, above and beyond IQ and EQ and personality. And so I think it's really important to think about developing cultural intelligence 
um, helping to to develop this sense of understanding different norms and values and different cultures before we start negotiating at these very high levels. I, I can also say that I've done a lot of research on negotiation in the Middle East, and it's very different in terms of the model than you'd find with the getting to yes model populated in the U.S., where we separate the people from the problem, where we try to get to yes rather quickly, time is money. In the Middle East, my research focuses on how people are negotiating something totally different. They're negotiating honor. They're negotiating trust, which takes a lot longer. And it makes sense in that ecology where there are weak institutions and there's a lot of uh, potential corruption. And so gaining uh, a sense of honor about someone is far more important than getting down to business. And this is just a broader point about the importance of understanding culture for national security um, and other contexts, that it's often something that's invisible that we forget about. Uh, and it's important to, to focus our attention on culture more. I actually think that we need a, a, a series of cultural advisors for the president and for other, other people um, and historians, for that matter, um, that these are things that are really important. Uh, the United States is a country that's very young. And, you know, we tend to be rather impatient, even to Tocqueville, noticed this hundreds of years ago. And I, I also studied American impatience. And again, it works well in this context, but it's, it really has a tremendous liability at the negotiation table when we go abroad. Yeah, I found that section to be really interesting and in just thinking about um, even if you're from a loose culture or a tight culture and you're interacting with someone different, there's this, there's this other factor of just being able to be aware and pick up on those differences and to um, understand kind of what's going on there um, and how that could influence major diplomatic decisions. Um, it's kind of another cultural sense, if you will. Yeah, that's right. It's also really important when we send people abroad to think about how their personality, their own tight loose mindset matches the place that they're going to. And this applies to us all of us who are even traveling or, or moving abroad, not just di diplomats. And in our recent research that's coming out in a journal, Psychological Science, we could see that, for example, it's harder to adapt to tight cultures, but people who have tighter mindsets who are going to tight cultures actually do just as well as others. So it, there's a certain person culture match that we could be thinking about as we're selecting people to go abroad, when we're selecting people to negotiate, you know, looking at their sense of cultural intelligence, there's a lot of ways to use culture to our benefit at the bargaining table and in national security context that's been really uh, unexplored. Hmm. To circle back, you were talking a little bit about negotiation in the Middle East, and the book talks about the Arab Spring, in particular, the example of what happened in Egypt. Um, you use a phrase that I, I underlined, autocratic recidivism. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what happened in Egypt and this phenomenon? Sure. So I'm just going to back up and say, you know, something like as complex as what happened in Egypt can't be explained by any one factor. But but tight loose is, is clearly one of them. And, and a sort of broader principle that I talk about in the book is is what I refer to as the Goldilocks principle that has to do with the balance and the strength of norms and the kind of pendulum shifts that can happen when norms get too tight. Um, and then they go to the opposite extreme and then they go back to tight again. And that's what um, you're referring to as autocratic recidivism. In Egypt, what we what we know is that we had a very tight culture that was controlled by an autocrat and people were able to rally to overthrow him. But once he was gone, there was a tremendous sense of disorder that uh, ensued in this context. It, it actually went to the opposite extreme of extreme looseness. 
of almost anime, as social sociologists would call it. People's behavior was not predictable. There was a rise in crime. It was totally disorderly. And it's in those contexts that people yearn for more autocratic governments, what I call autocratic recidivism. And on the ground after Eric was ousted, I, I was studying uh, people's attitudes. And people who perceived a lot of normlessness wanted a more extreme government back in place, Salafis, Muslim Brotherhood. This is a predictable pattern of when there's extreme looseness it begets the need for tightness. Um, there's other examples in the book I talk about. Again, multiply determined, but ISIS is an example where um, people don't realize that actually ISIS was welcomed in certain areas in Iraq when they arrived, in part because it was such a normless place, um, totally insecure, uh, no rules, um, people not able to coordinate, and they welcomed them because they provided some sense of predictability. Of course, this changed um, gears as they become extreme and for many reasons. But it's important to recognize this pattern that is, I think, sometimes not recognized by uh, the top levels that we can identify when our place is getting too loose. When are they getting to be so normless that it, autocratic forces are going to be welcomed with with open arms it's another example is you know, often Americans don't understand why the Philippines, why a lot of people have, you know, with some exceptions, really love Duterte. And it's a, largely a similar principle that the Philippines over the over the years has gotten enormously normless in many places. And and people wanted the kind of strong rulers to help uh, create order. And so I think it's really important to use these concepts of um, of tight moves to help to diagnose and, and predict when places will be becoming uh, amenable to extremist forces. So circling back to, to America, where do you think we are trending right now in terms of tightness and looseness? And what are the driving forces impacting American culture as it relates to culture broadly and national security? So, so the U.S. over the last 200 years, we have a paper that's coming out soon in Nature Human Behavior that's tracked how looseness has been increasing over time and tightness has been decreasing. Think, you know, the sort of uh, 1950s and the kinds of uh, rules and conformity that existed and, and even just um, language use and, uh, and other types of indicators um, that have changed over time. But no question, the U.S. is also facing a lot of dichotomies of tightness and looseness. We're seeing this sort of axis um, that's that's happening between uh, rural working class areas um, that tend to uh, veer tight and cities that tend to veer loose. Even though they have high population density, they have a lot of anonymity and they have a lot of mobility and diversity. You see that axis also um, explaining differences in, in England and in terms of Brexit. So I think tight loose is something that now it shifts. Now we can see within our own country um, that we're getting more divided. And the division is in large part, I believe, due to tightness and looseness and the need for strong norms among certain groups and the um, welcoming and safety of uh, of having um, you know more openness to, to to change and to diversity in other groups, um, and so I think it's really important um, to try to empathize with uh, why we differ in this and and try to to bridge some of these gaps. Of course, policymakers really need to help us do that. The U.S. tends to be generally loose, and I think we need to help the groups that are really struggling much more. In Germany, for example, there are more standardized procedures to help people, the working class, to be able to have certificates to go to different organizations and have training. 
Um, we need to try to emulate some of those tight practices to help people who are really struggling um, in order to, um, to to help bridge some of these divides. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to speak with us about your book. Um, before we let you go, would you mind sharing with us what you're working on next? <laughs> well, you know, our lab is just um, constantly doing tons of crazy studies. Yeah. Um, and we're there's so many directions um, that we're going on with with tight and loose. Um, one that I think is really exciting for us right now is looking at how we can help people cross the tight and loose divide, understand each other better, especially now that we kind of live in these echo chambers where we don't have a lot of access to what people are really doing in their lives. And we stereotype people in some ways extremely without even realizing that we're making up these realities that don't exist. An example of this is a study we did in U.S. and Pakistan recently where we asked Pakistanis, you know, what are their stereotypes of Americans? And, and they didn't just think of Americans as loose. They thought of us as extremely loose, as being half naked all the time and drinking all the time and calling the police and our parents and all sorts of things. And, and Americans, you know, also had very extreme stereotypes of Pakistanis. They thought of them as extremely tight, not just tight. They didn't assume that Pakistanis are singing songs and reading poetry and and dancing and play, and, and hanging out with their families. They don't assume that there's any kind of discretion in this context. And so what we did was we collected daily diaries from people in Pakistan and the U.S. over the course of eight days. And then we randomly assigned people in the U.S. to either read a Pakistani diary for the next week. Every day they were sent entries from the real diary. These weren't edited. Or Americans read diaries from their own country. And in Pakistan, we did the same thing. We randomly assigned people to either get diaries from Americans every day for seven days or they read diaries from their own country. And we measured their attitude change, the sense of distance they felt with the other culture over time. And it was remarkable to see that even though they recognized differences, we were able to reduce the perception that there's huge cultural difference, even just with this simple intervention. Pakistanis were able to see that Americans are far more like them than they realize, and vice versa, in terms of the, the fact that we do a lot of similar things. Yes, we're different, but these diaries help them to get a window into each other's lives that they've never seen before because we typically meet in the media where stereotypes are rampant. So we're excited to try to scale up this intervention to try to break these echo chambers across cultures when it's not easy to just fly people into another country and have them meet each other. But daily diaries might be one way to do it. It sounds like an exciting project. Thank you again for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Beth. Dr. Michelle Gelfand's book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World is available now from Scribner Books. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.